0: Hey, everybody, welcome into a very special edition of Bleeding Claret and Cobalt. Trey Fitzgerald, Ryan Hale here with you. Today's subject of a couple different, very fascinating discussions uh, concerns John Jenna, RSL Vice President Communications, more importantly, a very, very close personal friend, not only of mine, but so many people across uh, the RSL family. You know, John has been around our club uh, for eight years dating back to the LifeVantage jersey deal. And today's podcast contains a couple different discussions. Um, Our good friend Brian Dunseth does sit down with John Jenna to talk about the ALS diagnosis, how that came about, his attitude going forward, and all the things he's hoping uh, to accomplish you know, really, without knowing uh, how much time he's going to have to accomplish these things. But before we get to that conversation, myself and uh, Johnny Keeley, who uh, byline you may have seen on many, many different stories over the last few months with RSL.com, we sit down with Pablo Mastraweni to talk about uh, the motivation to honor John Jenna wearing the armband each game, his friendship with John. Um, Pablo actually had John Jenna come in and talk, uh, to the team recently about, uh, some different concepts surrounding family, legacy, and really, uh, seizing each day and trying to, uh, perform, uh, whether, uh, as a player, as a human, as a coach, uh, as a father, as a son, as a brother, etc., uh, to the best of your ability. Really fascinating, uh, philosophical stuff here from, Pablo Mastroeni now, John Jenna later, and as always, we appreciate Brian Dunseth, Johnny Keeley, uh, Ryan Hale, Tyler Gibbons, and everybody else that that helped this very very um, close personal special episode uh, come together. So, Pablo, like I think, what we want to start on today is just uh, the JG armband and. You know, um, obviously the club's doing a lot of things to bring awareness to John's plight and ALS. And, um, you know, John's talked about, you know, legacy and and some really, I think, cool and fascinating uh, concepts around what's really a difficult situation. But um, I think a lot of people first took notice when they saw the armband that you were wearing. And so I think in your own words, just, you know, What does that mean to you to be able to kind of pay homage and what is your time uh at this club with john meant to you
1: well i'll just start with my own relationship with um with life really and and in death i I had uh, a younger brother when i was five years old die of sids and i saw it firsthand so it's always been an intriguing aspect of my psyche um understanding what life is and the relationship that death has with life Um, and for me it's always been an impetus to really live Um, and I have this affinity for people that are dealing with terminal illnesses and the bravery and courage that they have. And I always think to myself, can you live like that before, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, we're all terminally ill. I, I, we're all on the clock. Um, but it's moments like this that really bring it to the forefront. And, you know, when, when I when I met John, um, I didn't know a whole lot about him, but as I as I took over the group last year, he became a mentor to me really after games and was just talking about leadership and, and how, you know, it was an important role that is important aspect of the way he coached when he was a coach. And so we started building this relationship, um, last year and always positive, very insightful. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, a lot of the words that he spoke resonated with me. And so that relationship continued on, obviously, to this year. Um, and I'd always I'd always ask him when I saw him, did you get any update on your condition? And he'd never have an update. You know, they're trying to do all these tests. So a couple months ago, he reached out, and he told me that he had ALS. And, um, and it was almost like my world stopped for a second. And to hear strength in his voice about overcoming this and being the first person to do it um, i think it represents everything that i want to become as a human being and how one man's plight and his perspective on that plight is an inspiration to to all of us and really it goes beyond sport it goes back to what i was talking about the relationship of life and death um and and the way he's carried himself in the last few months uh, is an inspiration to me and and makes me want to have just a tenth of what john has Um, and so the armband for me is a representation of the person that i want to become in lieu of this terrible situation that that john's in and so i think he's a representative really of the human race and and what it means to to be in a very difficult situation, but yet be optimistic, be inspirational, um, and so those are the, that that's the reason why I wear it. And and the other part is, um, I I think in in times where where I've been injured as a player, you feel lonely and you feel like almost ostracized, not because people people are ostracizing you, but because people have their own lives to live um, and everyone's going through their own struggles. And so for me, it, it's, it's a representation of, you're a part of this family, you're a part of our team. You know, he spoke to the guys before one of the games and, and really spoke about legacy and what do you want to be known as and what do you want to leave behind? And again, those kind of things, uh, you know, we have that opportunity every single day to really create our own legacy, but it's not until you run into a situation like this where you realize that you're on the clock. And so, um, you know, I feel honored to be able to wear the uh, the armband, um, and and grateful to know a guy like John. You know, I interviewed John
0: uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he told me about when he first heard that you're going to wear the armband, and how emotional it meant it, and how emotional it made him, and how much it meant to him. Can you tell me a little bit more about your relationship and that mentorship aspect?
1: Yeah, I think again for me, it was when I took over the team last year. Uh, we found ourselves in, in, in conversations and in texts and phone calls uh, really after games. And he was, you know, just commenting on, on some of the ways that the group had changed um, over the course of the whatever it was, four months. And, you know, when we got into the playoffs, you know he was saying a big part of of what we were able to achieve was from a leadership perspective um and he'd share stories when when he was coaching and and for me it was just somebody that that validated the work that we were doing um and unbeknownst to him a lot of our conversations was was carried into the locker room um and and I think he was uh and still is a, a big part of uh the way I wish to lead and the the leader I wish to become and and so those conversations were real poignant um and even more so now given given the situation that he's in so um but but again, I think for me it was more just affirmation that I was doing, that he was seeing it from his perspective, that I was doing the right thing from the results that we were getting, both on and off the field as a club, um, and that meant a lot to me. What kind of inspired you guys to have John speak to the team before a match? I, I mean, for me, I, I think it's. Uh, I think sport is always a microcosm of life. You know, I you know I, I think a lot of players in this generation play the game because they love it. Unfortunately, 99% of the players feel like they're going to play forever. And they don't play every single game and train every single day as an opportunity to get better, knowing that your time is limited as, as a footballer. Um, and I, I think giving perspective not only about life, but about the game and making sure that every time you step on the field is an opportunity to leave a legacy behind. And I think that... That message uh, for me is 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 was really critical, especially where where we were in the in the in the playoff chase, uh, where we were as a group. Again, with so many different variables, players coming in, players leaving, um, that all those things were distractions. But what was really important is is to buckle down as a group, as a team, and to have an inspirational speaker like John. Um, I thought was really important for the group
0: um awesome well thanks for obviously sharing um your thoughts on what is kind of a i guess unknown territory right for a lot of people in this club right and even for john as well and i mean personally as a guy who has worked with this guy every day for a lot of years like it's inspirational Mm -hmm. it really is his attitude like i like you said um hope to face those kinds of challenges with one tenth uh, strength and resolve and attitude optimism. Mm-hmm. I mean the list goes on and on. He's just uh, truly a, a, a kind of an icon I think when you think about how to deal with adversity. So
1: yeah, no, I agree. And you know I think it's so interesting because I've, I've read quite a bit on people that that are in these situations, whether they lose a limb, Or they're paralyzed in accidents and how their perspective on life changes um and it's almost they just squeeze every last bit of optimism out of the universe and but when you're in a very what we call great state of physical health mental health at times we don't we're complacent we're okay um and and then from from that state we think oh if this happened to me i would i don't know how i could carry on and there's this superpower that occurs in 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 the mind when you when you experience these things um but more than that is always thinking about how do you tap into that Mm. when you're not when you're not in that situation because that's those are the one percenters yeah you know and it could be in sport it could be in business it could be you know in family life like that's that's my aim um is to become you know a person before you have to become that person right. when did you uh, as a player realize that you weren't going to be able to play forever i was 28 years old and i remember it like it was yesterday i cut out red meat i started reading about diet nutrition and how red meat most of it rots before it can actually be absorbed from wow. a nutrition standpoint, um, in doing so, I lost ten pounds, um, and I I sensed my mortality at twenty eight, mm. um, and which was interesting, I ended up playing until I was thirty eight, and so that is one instance in my life where I was, you know, that guy where I realized I'm on the clock. I got to change. Um, guys that are coming up are younger faster, stronger, more technical. And if I want to survive beyond 32, 33, I got to change my way of living. And so then I got into meditation. I I started getting into all kinds of different um, self-care aspects of of sport to really preserve the body that at some point is going to run run out.
0: Wow. Um,
1: Was that in between the two World Cups that you played in? Um, Yeah, it was in between the two. And then I I did most all the qualifying leading up to 2010 as well, Wow. Um, and then didn't go to 2010. And then I doubled down again. And then I thought, um, I'm going to get stronger. Uh, I need to get. I, I need to c- continue on. So every stage of my career, you know, you had to overcome obstacles in order to stay relevant because in yeah. this game it changes real quick. So I think that 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 is actually and and i always felt like on the field and in the sport in the in the professional arena i could be that guy but off the field there's a it, it was there's and it still is it's it's so big um and at times daunting to think about your purpose like is it this is this what defines me my, my profession mm. then what about all this other stuff and, and 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 so, that's always been uh, the biggest challenge for me is 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 how do I take the stuff away from the game and be relevant, you know, to my family, uh, to greater humanity, and, and I've battled with it, you know. Um, I think giving is is a huge part. I I I was involved with um, the uh, Lakota tribe, um, in. Uh, what was the name of the uh the reservation uh, i want to say pinehurst pine ridge. pine ridge pine ridge and traveled with a, a band um dispatch a buddy of mine is it was in the band um and we went and we did and i they went and played a uh a little set and i went and did a, like a six hour clinic for the kids oh, and met wow. with the coach um And, and kind of gave back. And so I haven't done that enough. I haven't allocated enough time away from the game to be able to do that. But when I came back from that, I felt a different human being, you know, and I think even going to where John is, I think in this moment while he's going through a hard time, he's really giving. Yeah. And, and that I think is, uh, the next step in, in, in my life, as far as evolution is concerned, is, is to give back um, and and make change and help change and help in any way I can to, to live a better life than I'm living now. Mm. Um,
0: I think we're lucky because, you know, Brian Dunseth, who played for us and has obviously been our TV, radio ambassador or whatever for... 12, almost maybe 14 years, he talks a lot about this, about us as fans or media or whatever. We see guys 90 minutes a week, and we judge them or value them or whatever based on those 90 minutes inside the white lines. And it it sounds so obvious, but we don't think about it, and this could be for any sport, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on outside those 90 minutes that affect how people perform in that spotlight right and um you know you talk about giving it makes me think of demir and everything he's been through this year but he's still passionate about you know bringing out of his own pocket 100 people a game to krylock's corner and it's been matched by ownership and some corporate entities it's like 450 kids that would never have a chance to go to a soccer game that have been coming every week this year um Obviously, when we talk about playoffs and performance and trying to kind of recapture that those moments from last year that got us in, Demir's central to that. But I guess from your perspective, how have you seen him probably handle – I think it's the first major injury he's had in his 18-, 16-year professional career. And obviously, he's a great human and a great leader, but I just – Would love to hear your kind of perspective on on how he's endured over the last six, eight months.
1: Yeah, I I think it's been obviously very tough for him. And, you know, I think the one, the biggest difficulty with with injury, and it goes back to what I said earlier about feeling ostracized, as even though he is the leader of this team, it's hard to lead when you're not on the field. Um, Because there's almost this like, what's the term? You feel like fraudulent about it. Yeah, right? it's, it is. It's called... Uh, there's, Imposter there's syndrome? Imposter syndrome. Yeah. And it's easy to speak from from the stands. <laughs> it's it's another thing to speak in the trenches with the guys. Yeah. Um, and so I think he's been kind of battling that. It's hard to feel a part of something when, when you're just not a part of it. Mm. Um, and the way he's influenced the group... Has been by his actions, and I think that's always a true sign of a leader. Uh, you know, we can all say words are easy to, yeah. to fly out of the mouth. It's the actions that really, mm-hmm. you know, make a difference. And he comes in early. He's doing his rehab. He's on the field doing his rehab. He comes back in and does his post-training rehab. Um, and he's been doing this all year. And and so when when even though he hasn't been able to be as vocal uh, as he was last year his influence on the group has been tangible because of his actions. And so um, whilst it's been difficult, having him around the group has been critical to keeping all this together through a difficult year.
0: Pablo, really appreciate you um, opening up on on what can be you know, kind of a difficult subject matter, but uh, really appreciate your time. And now we'll go over to Brian Dunseth and the man, the myth, the legend himself, John Jenna.
2: everyone brian dunseth from real salt lake uh, i don't know i'm a knucklehead i don't know how to explain what i do former player uh broadcaster um and been around the club since arguably day one i can remember sitting in an apartment in sweden when the announcement dave Chekets uh john kimball everybody involved uh were the announcements the confetti outside of rice eccles stadium and here we are However, many years later, uh, watching this team figure out under new ownership what exactly the future looks like at Rio Tinto Stadium, Pablo Mastroni and company. But there's so many stories behind the scenes that have transpired over the years into relationships, friendships. Um, and today, I don't do this this often, but I'm joined by Vice President of Communications and Public Relations, John Jenna. John, appreciate the time. Thanks, Brian. I'm happy to be here. By the way, you call me Brian. It's so weird when people call me Brian because (laughs) you just made it so professional, and it's not professional, not in this setting. Fine, Dunny. I know. (laughs) It's great now because, by the way, uh, for those that don't know, Dunn says my last name. Everyone calls me Dunny at this point, but it wasn't until I was on an airplane to the Olympics uh, flying to Australia, Sydney, and the guy next to me, probably about eight hours in, goes, mate, why do they call you Dunny? And I was like, oh, Dunseth, you know, it's my last name, click a little nickname. He's like, you might want to think about that one. And I was like, oh, why is that? And he goes, because in Australia, a dunny's a shitter. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, there we go. You're uh, talking
3: to a guy who grew up with the name John. There you go. So, there you know. we, hey, <laughs> hey, there we go.
2: I put it together. Um, so you and I go back. Uh, for for those that don't know, before you came, and I want to I want to look back at your life and where you started, where you came from, but before being associated with Real Salt Lake, you're over at LifeVantage. So your relationship with this club, with this personnel, and people have come and gone, um, but you have a, a very, very organic relationship yeah. because you come from kind of more outside sponsorship-esque uh, to now being kind of the culture and the fabric within this club. So for us, our relationship, I know we laugh about this all the time, it was a trip to Vancouver, we're on the same flight, we're getting off, you're asking me how I'm getting to the hotel. I say, I don't have a ride, I'm gonna get a cab. You're like, I got you. And then I realized I didn't have my phone turned on and I didn't have any access to any type of maps or my my location or what hotel I was staying at. And you and I spent about, I don't know, 45 minutes, Yep. looking for our hotel in downtown Vancouver, literally going up and down, Driving up and down road, every single yep. street. And it was so, so much fun to get to know you yeah. during that time. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I look back at that and I'm like, that was such an organic start to a friendship. Yep. Um. So take me back. Let, let, let's go to the very beginning. Like who is John Jenna? Where did John Jenna grow up? Kind of give me bullet points of of what it was like for you.
3: Yeah. Born and raised in Queens, New York, mm-hmm. um, you know, parents of my, my parents were my mother was from puerto rico her father was a professional baseball player in puerto rico he was actually born dominican republic he was black um he moved to puerto rico because he wanted to get out of his family was kind of in a servitude type position there and so he wanted to he wanted to play ball moved to puerto rico uh, became a professional baseball player in puerto rico and then, you know, wanted to get out of Puerto Rico and come to the States. And so he did. Wound up in the Negro Leagues in New Jersey. You know, my mother was born, stayed kind of in that area. Uh, my father was literally his his parents came right off the boat from Sicily, settled in Brooklyn, you know, and they met at the Brooklyn Navy Yard of all places. Oh, wow. He was uh, doing a turn in the Korean War, and he came back on leave. And my mother was his boss's executive assistant. At that time it was called the secretary, and it was yeah. a big deal because yeah. he came in, in in his full uniform and looking you know, sharp. Ooh, yeah. Looking sharp yeah. and ooh, hey, montanti has got a new secretary. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, and then they moved into Queens. It was kind of a thing for them because, you know, it was a big deal that they were able to buy a house and mm. and move into Queens, because that was the suburbs back then. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of where I grew up, right in the, the heart of Queens, right by the shadows of Shea Stadium. You could see the lights from my my front porch. So, what give give me kind
2: of what it looked like as as a child growing up, um, with with this type of family dynamic? Because I'm always intrigued when when I hear kind of the stories of who parents were and who grandparents were. Obviously, that has a a very physical trickle down effect, but it also has a a mentality effect. So, like. Describe what the mentality was like of your family kind of growing up. Very
3: blue collar. You know, my dad was a really hard worker. He was in shipbuilding for 48 years. Wow. Um, And, you know, he started out as a a boiler maker on on, uh, destroyers and and Navy ships. Wow. Um, And then became what's called a steam fitter. So he was no longer in the boilers. He was putting the pipes around to run, you know, radiant heat around the ships. So very, very blue collar, very hands-on, do-it-yourself kind of thing. And, you know, my mom was... You know, very much, she loved sports. I mean, she loved baseball. Mm-hmm. We would go, I would meet her. She worked at a at a hospital that was a couple miles away. And, yeah, you know, she'd work till 4 o'clock and she'd call me and say, hey, there's a Mets game tonight, you want to meet me? And I'd ride my bike down to Shea and I'd lock my bike up against the outfield fence by the, actually right behind the bullpen. And we'd meet and we'd go watch games. That's amazing. And so that, for me, that was, you know, you, you, those were my two biggest influences. Yeah. You know, my dad being such a hard worker and you know my mom just taking care of everything else. Yeah. And then you know baseball, and so, and you know with our proximity to to, to Shea Stadium, the original Shea. Yeah. Um, neither team was very good as I was. I mean, I'm 55 years old, so yeah. I was growing up in the 70s, and so neither team was very good by the time I was going to games. And so, I mean, you you know five bucks and you're sitting 20 rows up off the field mm-hmm. watching the Jets, and the Mets. You know, and it was it was just. We were just, it, we were bred in the sports. Yeah. So,
2: and those are those are flashback memories, right? Absolutely. If you hear any song, you you, yep. you have a certain meal, you have a certain snack, and absolutely
3: ad, a drink, it takes you right back the, in time. The the, the the black and white ice creams, the chocolate vanilla oh, okay. ice creams yeah. that had kind of that S shape. Yeah. in there. Hot dogs, beer. My mom loved to have a beer and a hot dog and watch the game. Yeah. And you know, so that's the kind of stuff that takes me back. The smell of the peanuts and yeah. stuff, I can still smell it. You know, yeah. sitting here now talking to you about it. It's bringing it all back.
2: It's so, so funny you say that because growing up in Southern California, my, my grandfather had tickets off first base at the Big A. Uh, so hate the Dodgers. Yeah. Dodgers, I hate you. Yep. Uh, so I'm an Angels guy. So I grew up going and sitting with him uh, only every, every once in a while, right? And it would be Wally Joyner at first base. Yeah. And I can remember I would always go ask for the ice cream, but it would be, uh, it would be vanilla ice cream, strawberry Topping and it would come in a little uh, angel's helmet. Oh, you guys
3: were fancy in California. Yeah, man. We, <laughs> we, we
2: didn't do like any of just the plastic, it yep. was a helmet. And, <laughs> and I can remember, like, I would just stack the helmets up. Yeah. And then that's like in my mind with my grandpa, that was like our bonding experience because yeah. I was super close with my mom's side of the family. And when my dad's side of the family, my parents divorced early, um, we had to figure out certain things that were like memory points, right? And so those were always that. so. As you say that, I can still smell. I can imagine, you know, crushing the peanuts, dropping them on the floor, yep. eating the ice yep. cream, all that stuff. Yep. Those are all, I mean, memories, right? Um, so, as as a you're a father, I'm a father. I'm kind of in the midst of it right now with yeah. a 13 year old, a 10 year old, and a four year old, and one of the things I find myself doing is not only am I trying to give to my children what I never had, you know, I want them to like, I want to feel good about what I'm doing. It's the feel good factor. But it's also how do I create men and how do I create respectful human beings? How do I create work ethic athletically? How do I create work ethic, you know, school-wise? What, what was that like for you? How did you find that balance of having such a such a strong role model in both you know, the male side and the female side of your family?
3: You know, my, my father, the big thing with my father, you know, he, he was born in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And so he was a kid in the depressions. And so for him, it was always about, you know, contributing to the family. Um, he actually wound up doing... A, he served in World War II as his brother, Charlie, because Charlie had a job. And my father was um, younger and wasn't making that much money. Yeah, And so he served as Charlie Jenna in World War II <laughs> and then did his own turn in the Korean War, you yeah, know, years yeah. later. So it was just... It was always that... Um, for him, it was about... I mean, he basically dropped out of school after seventh grade. Hmm. And so, you know, for him, it was, I want my kids to have good education. He used to tell us all the time, work ethic with him. It was, you know, Dad, I, I, I'll you know, never forget. I I still have some of it. My wife calls me a pack rat, but <laughs> I, I wanted a color TV for my room. Yeah. And my father would say all the time, oh, that's great. Get a good education, get a good job, and you can buy yourself color TV. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so at that age, you know, I had a paper out and, my paper out, paid for my color TV, and I still tote that thing around today. Everywhere I go, I don't even know if it works. It's yeah, got the rabbit ears. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. Thirteen inches. That's what instilled. I mean, for us, it was always about he wanted us to accomplish the things he didn't. Hmm. And you know, he's like anybody can work hard. I I want you all to work hard, but accomplish things for yourself. Yeah, you know. And for him, the big thing was, you know, every t- it was it. There were milestones for him, like when he could buy a new car. yeah, There were milestones for him when, you know, he looked at his house. And we always hosted, like, big family events. You know, my mother always put out the big spread. And my father was one of nine kids. My mother was one of four. And so we always did, like, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter at the house because he was one of the, the few kids that actually was able to, you know, build his own empire and have a house in Queens. He wasn't in Brooklyn anymore. They weren't living in an apartment in Manhattan or anything mm-hmm. like that. They were in a home in Queens. So that kind of instilled and he always drove and I was look, you're gonna be you're gonna be able to go further if you have a good education. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was the like I said, his blue collar guy. All three of us went to prep school in, you know, Queens, you know, we all went to St. Francis Prep. Um huge sports tradition. Uh you know, you're talking Vince Lombardi, you're talking yeah. Jerry Denari, you're talking all these people. We all went there, and you know, back in the in the eighties, it's three, thirty five hundred bucks a year, three thousand dollars a year. It's a lot of money each kid. Yeah, and so that was a lot for him, you know. But that's, that was what drove it for us. It's like, look, Pops really wants us to, yeah. you know, and that's what we call him. He was giving you a gift, yeah. He, he wanted us to work for it, though. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, and he would say, it's funny you said gift because he would say, no, this isn't a gift. The gift is going to be what comes after. Yeah, yeah. When you are when you get out of prep and yeah. when you move on and you get a better job because you went to prep and yeah. you put on your resume you yeah. went to prep. You know, it was funny because we used to joke, like, Pop, you don't even know what a resume is. He's uh-huh. like, oh, I know what a resume yeah, is. As as you yeah. want to see a resume? And yeah. he'd show you his hands. Yeah, yeah. He'd show you his hands because yeah. he was so... But but that, you know, and my mother was very supportive in that. And, you know, I mean, the sports dream was big. And, and it was something that my mother loved. Hmm. She never missed a game, no matter where we were. You know, my brother went up to Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, four-hour drive. And she went to all his games. That's you know, awesome. She used to get in the car. Even when I started coaching... You know, it was. I was shocked to see her, never expected her to be, you know, in Cortland, which is five and a half hours away. Here I am, you know, getting the team ready, getting ready to take the field. And, you know, I poke around and, and there she is. Yeah. And, and so my mother was Hispanic, too, and she would say, Juanito Komota, and I would hear that, and be like, <laughs> "Where is she?" Yeah, yeah, but that's the kind of that's what they instilled in mm-hmm. me, and so that's you know the kind of father that I've been or try to be. Yeah, for my girls, you know, I have it a little different because I got you know all girls. Yeah. So.
2: Well, so when you say that, when you talk about the prep school, I went to all boys Catholic high school, and it was my grandfather, the same grandfather that took me to Angel Games. Uh, it was like eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year, which was extraordinarily expensive when you can talk about public school. Uh, but we had we had a gang bust. We had a we had a drug bust at Upland High School when I was at Pioneer Junior High and they're like, Nope, you're not going there. We're gonna keep you safe. And little did they know the same thing happened. <laughs> yeah. Just it's a little bit different. You were just in a uniform. Everybody yeah, everyone's wearing <laughs> college shirts instead of wearing t-shirts. But you know, I, I remember people saying to me like, Oh, what a gift, what a gift. And to your point, in real time, it's like is it really a gift? Like it's still school. Like what are we talking about here? And it's not until you're done and you look back, you have the ability and the gratitude of looking back. And you're like, oh my gosh, this was such a gift because it changes the trajectory of your life. It, it gives you certain certain building blocks um, to continue to kind of grow into that afterworld. So let's fast forward. Now that I understand kind of your background, I get a sense of your mentality. How how did how did how did Utah? Come into the equation for a guy that's born and bred in such an east
3: coast pocket i was commuting three hours each way um i was 26 years old and i was with chart house restaurants and uh at that point in time um i was living in queens the restaurant i was in was in greenwich connecticut oh wow And i was riding mass transit i was literally riding you know the bus yeah to the train the train to grand central grand central i'd hop on the metro north up to greenwich three hours each way and, uh, you know, it was exhausting and, uh, you know, I, I had a college education. I had coached for seven years prior to that. I had decided to make a career change to kind of get out of sports, make some money, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. as you know, cause back then, I mean, you just didn't make any money mm-hmm. and, um, I was riding a train. I had just, it was New Year's day morning and I had just worked New Year's Eve and I had cooked over 800 dinners the night on New Year's Eve. And I crashed at a at a hotel up in Greenwich, Connecticut. Get on the train first thing in the morning so I can get home. Yeah, and I'm riding the train, and I and I had taken the Metro North and the Grand Central. I hopped on the seven train, and it comes out from the the seven train is one of the only elevated trains left in New York, and it but it goes under the East River. So in Manhattan, it's underground. Yeah, comes out from underground, and you know the lights come on, and you know you're kind of looking, at, and it was me. And there was a homeless guy. We were the only two people on the train. It was freezing. It's, you know, New York yeah, in yeah, December yeah. or January 1st. Yeah. Freezing cold, no heat on the train. You know, this guy is asleep on the train. Who knows how long he'd been there. And I look up at the, the whole point of the coming up onto the river. You turn north for a second and you're running parallel to the Hudson. And I could see up the Hudson in the distance. And I literally said to myself, man, there has got to be more to life than this. Mm. And, uh, and I called somebody and I, who was a travel agent. I said, hey, Annie, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to buy me a ticket to Golden, Colorado. I need you to buy me a ticket to Salt Lake City, Utah, and to San Diego. Because Chart House had restaurants there that were looking for people that had my skill set. Okay. And this was the first place I came. And literally, I flew out. I came over. There. It was a Sunday morning. It was yeah. beautiful blue skies. It was early. And I mean, just the majestic mountains. You're talking about a kid from Queens, New York. Yeah. You looked out your window and the guy next door was eight feet away and he was sitting in his wife beater in the dining room yeah. as you're in your dining room, you're like, oh hi, Mr. Zaki. Yeah. You know. But I wanted more than that. And I literally I landed on a Sunday. I paid a cab driver a hundred bucks to drive me up Big Cottonwood Canyon so I could see kind of yeah. in the mountains. And by Thursday of that week I had bought a condo and I didn't have a job. I knew nobody here. I didn't have a job, yeah. nothing. I just bought a condo and I said, I- I'm going there. And I flew home. I got my dog. I threw everything I could in my car. And I've been here ever since. Headed west. That's it, 1994.
2: So, 94, God, I just think about the bar scene back in 94. <laughs> Think about what that looked. Uh, can I get a side cart? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, exactly. Man, we remember you had to be a member everywhere. That was, and I got here in two thousand five, so it just shows. You had You had to be a member. You yeah. had to.
3: I mean, yeah, you, you, you paid the twenty five bucks to get somebody to sponsor you. Yeah, cover charge. You know, cover charge. Making money,
2: yep. heathens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know. I, As someone who has traveled, you know, I grew up in L.A., I've, uh, you know, went to Boston and was down to Miami and into Columbus and down to Dallas and over to Sweden and back here to Salt Lake. I understand what it's like to be by yourself. I understand what it's like to set up, quote unquote, a home in a new city, in a new country and to feel Completely out of place. I mean, yeah. going being being a kid from Southern California wearing hoodies and and jeans and a hat backwards and rolling into the epicenter of Abercrombie and Fitch <laughs> <Yeah>. in Boston <laughs> with you know with flannels and people chewing on their hats and asking you if you you want any jimmies instead of sprinkles, brother. You want jimmies, and I'll have some sprinkles, brother. Jimmy sprinkles, yeah. same thing. <laughs> um, you know it's it's quite the uh, it's quite the experience. What what was like your first court of first course of action when you got to Salt Lake City? Because you have from every every conversation that I've had with you privately, how you've created something and or reinvented yourself throughout your professional career is is nothing short of extraordinary.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, my first course of action was to find a job. I literally came out of here without a job, and uh, Chart House had an opportunity. I was. So I was an opener for Chart House for a while. They would send me out to new locations to yeah. help them get open. They had this term that they had created called a fixer. Hmm. And I became a fixer. Yeah. Not like you've seen it Yeah, in some yeah. Of <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna be like, ah, John, you have a fixer. Yeah. Um, so I came out here and I I went down. There was it used to be at the Deverell house right across from Vivint. you yep. know. Yep. Um and I went in there and uh, the GM at the time, great guy from Jersey, you know, kind of over his head, but you know, he 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 was running the place. Yeah. And I said, you know, Ron, I I can help you fix this place. And he's like, "Aren't you? Weren't you in New York?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm a Chart House guy." Yeah. Anyway, I went there as a fixer. My degree from Marist was in um, marketing, um, so I had a degree in in business administration, marketing concentration, finance concentrations, and so I went there. And you know, Chart House is a national yeah. corporation. They had a relationship with an ad agency. At the time, it was called Evans Group. And, you know, I reached out to those guys right away. I'm like, listen, I know that you guys have a relationship, corporate relationship with Chart House. We have a Chart House here downtown. Let's do local. Yeah, let's, so do, local. Some help. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. do some local stuff. I actually wound up, I, I worked for a year at Chart House and wound up going to the agency. Okay. Um. And so, you know, I that's where I was able to get into the advertising world here. Yeah. You know, they literally, it was funny because they were pitching United Healthcare. United Healthcare was launching a Medicare account. Yeah. And they were pitching it, and everybody, all the executives on the account were gone. And this woman, Connie White, um, who actually lives by you, but she, uh, Connie was the chief operating officer at the agency at the time. And I went in there for an interview, and, uh, you know, we had a great interview, but there was nobody around from the account to say, you know, yeah, we'll hire you or not. So I left, I'm walking down Social Hall Avenue, I had parked all the way down at the end because I didn't have money to pay for parking. And this woman is running down Social Hall Avenue. John, wait, John, wait. She hired me on the spot. Wow! And so it was really cool because she gave me my shot, you know. And then I met people like Dave Thomas, people who have been in this market forever. Forever. And you know, Dave, you know, took me under his wing and and mentored me a lot. And then I bounced over, you know. I, it's funny because I went from the client side to the agency side. Yeah. Then I went to First Security Bank, who was a client of the agency. Yeah. You know, so I kind of went, you know, client. Agency back to client, yeah, Um, and then I got pulled in at CHG Healthcare, and I was there for nine years. So I, I, I was able to kind of leverage a lot of my background to to move around, and it's it's you know it's been kind of this long and winding road, but I mean it was just that's just kind of how I was able to piece it all together, and I've had you know I've been able to leverage like my complete roles, yeah. you know, so
2: well what what I've noticed since I've got to Salt Lake City is it is a very I was going to say incestual community in terms of business, but I don't know if I can get away with saying that uh, in in this world. But it is very, it's a very tight knit group where relationships matter. Yes, and word of mouth is arguably even more important than the quality of work an individual does and how those relationships, who you are, how you handle yourself. If you are organic in who you are as a human being, that goes a long, long way with the opportunities yes. that ones are given. And I've and I've watched specifically with Real Salt. Well, I'll go all the way back. People that were interns from my playing career are now in jobs of massive, massive influence and control around the league. I mean, some guys are even presidents of clubs, and they started as interns. Yeah. Uh, you know, one guy was running CONCACAF, and he was the one who was taking me to my appearances at the New England Revolution. So I was always acutely aware of my relationships with people and how that could be beneficial down the road, not not, not just in the business side, you know, the opportunity side, mm-hmm. but more just, you know, keeping in touch with people yes. and, and having those connections. So when you're when you're talking about kind of jumping around and bouncing around, I think the one thing that that I've noticed and tell me if I'm wrong, yes, while there's financial opportunity in all of this, the the cultivating of being this chameleon yes. in the business world, how important that becomes.
3: Well, and to your point, I mean, every place, the only place I did not have a a true connection was Life Advantage. Hmm. Every other place that I I've worked at, it was through a connection. Of, I was I had either been so for example I was the client at at Chart House, the folks at Evans Group were great working to work with, and then you know brought me right in yeah you know and then I was at Evans Group, and First Security Bank was their client, well the folks at First Security were great to work with so they came to me and they yeah. went to Dave and they said listen we'd like to take John and Dave Thomas was like. Perfect because I had worked at Evans Group for years, and he was like, This is going to be perfect. We're going to have our guy working there. Yeah, it's easier. And then, same thing. I mean, I was, it was funny because when I worked at Evans Group, I was, you know, I was an account service. Yeah. So I was in a cubicle. And it was more like a big corral. We didn't have, we called it the Shark Tank. They yeah, yeah, put yeah. Up, you know. Uh, <laughs> Little did you know, huh? <laughs> I know, right? We should have coined it. <laughs> uh, but there was a woman uh, who was an account director, and she hmm. was in an office. And her husband used to come in every. He was going for his master's at Westminster. And he used to come in every day, and he used to say to me, John, when I graduate, I'm going to come find you. You're coming to work for me. Uh-huh. And he used to tell me that all the time. His name's Scott Beck. Um and, you know, he used to say, you know, his wife was Sherry Beck and, and he'd say, you know, Sherry, this kid's great. I mean, he's great. I wasn't a kid. I was in the mid-20s, but he was like, you oh, this kid's great. He's great. I want this kid. I want this kid. And, you know, I bounced over to First Security and First Security, we had gone through the failed merger with Zions Bank. I was mm-hmm. there for all of that. Um, and one day my phone rings and it's Scott Beck and he says, John, I've landed a job at CHG. It was before CHG Healthcare was CHG. We created that actually. And he said, I want you to come work for me. And, you know, my, at the time, my wife was about to give birth to, it's now my oldest daughter. And it's like, I'm gonna bounce jobs uh-huh. and I'm gonna do all this Scary, now, I mean, right? literally. Yeah. And literally, you know, went out my my, my my wife had the baby and that was April 7th. And April 28th was my first day at, at CHG Healthcare. And so I had a great ride there. I was there for nine years. We did a lot there. Um, and again, relationships. Mm. You know, for people that I had worked with, people that I had known, that kind of thing. When I left CHG Healthcare, I actually went freelance for a while. Okay. Um, I missed kind of the office camaraderie and such, yeah, yeah. the Team. connections, yeah. right? Team, yeah. And, uh, you know, I went to um, – a recruiter reached out to me, and that's actually how I wound up at LifeVantage because I knew people from my days at Evans Group that were on the C-suite at LifeVantage at the time. So those relationships that you're yeah. talking about, I mean – I'm a perfect example of that. And then even how I wound up with the club because I was, you know, responsible for, I didn't do the deal specifically for Life Vantage. I was the guy behind the scenes. So I was the guy putting together presentations to sell it to the board. I was the guy, you know, actually presented it to the board because poor timing. Our CEO was in Hawaii Hmm. when we pitched it to the board and he calls me and he's like, and the guy that I worked for, the, the CMO was in Japan. And, you know, Doug Robinson was the CEO of Manager at the time. He's like, John, I need you to pitch this yeah. on Saturday. I'm like, to who? Yeah. He's like, the board. I'm like, all right, here we go. Here you know? we go. But, you know, I was so ingrained with people like Trey. Yeah. People like um, Bill Manning. People like, I mean, even Andy Carroll. Yeah. Just trying to get all the information I needed to get this brand new publicly traded company, publicly traded board of directors. Yeah. To buy into spending, you know, a lot of money every year for marketing. Yeah. Money they never spent before. Yeah. But again, it was relationships that kind of carried me through. And, you know, when when things changed at Life Vantage, I mean, we went through the C suite, the entire Suite seat was changed out. Yeah. I mean, completely. And, you know, I lasted through that. And then the new C-suite came in and I they I was the guy who knew where all the bodies were buried. so Yeah, yeah. yeah. of... <laughs> Get him out! Get him out! So they, you know, they kept me around because they wanted to know oh, what don't we know? Okay, yeah, know, what don't we know? Well, that's what, smart. Yeah, yeah. So they kept me around, and then you know my time just kind of fizzled out there, and uh, they let me go in in February, and I was trying really hard to find a job. It was, you know, kind of a tough time. And, yeah. Um, I literally, I had stayed in touch with with Andy Carroll because. You know, he needed somebody that knew the partnership. Mm. I mean, I knew that thing like the back of my hand. And there was a lot of changes at the time. It was a really turbulent, turbulent yeah. time. Yeah. On both sides. Yeah. And so, you know, I knew that deal. I mean, I could still recite that contract, you know, the, the the elements in that contract 10 years later. And so he stayed in touch with me because he needed to know, you know, when he had questions about the deal or inner workings at angel or any of that stuff, he would reach out. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, you know, he – he I, w- I had actually was interviewing – with the Austin Spurs uh, in the G League and they were looking for somebody to come out and kinda of do what I do. Mm. And uh they had made me an offer and you know Andy coincidentally had reached out and was like, hey, you know, he wanted to chat because he had some questions about Life Ange. And I said, Yeah, I said, I'm not gonna be around much longer. I'm going into I'm moving to Austin. It's a good little drop. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good little drop. I said, I'm gonna I'm moving to Austin and so I'm not gonna be around. And he's like, What are you going to Austin for? I said, Well I'm taking a, a partnership position with the G League there, and he's like, "Why don't you come work for me?" Hmm. Um, and I had worked with Robert Castellano for yeah, years yeah. at CHG, yeah. Yeah. so I knew Robert. I knew you know everybody that was there, and I was I was a partner for years. Yeah, and so uh, three days later, I started at RSL, and I've been there obviously ever since.
2: So I used to see you all the time, mainly on road trips, yep. and that's when I was uh, allowed to travel. David James and I, Kenny Neal, and we would. Uh, take our our brand of knuckleheads on the road and go call games. (laughs) But it was so much fun. (laughs) It was so much fun. And and we would always see you. And I remember in the beginning, it was just kind of this organic, like, hey, what's up, man? How are you? Like, good to see you. And we kind of like bump into each other. And then little by little, you know we we would see each other on the road and we'd grab some uh, grab a meal or grab a drink or just hang out for a minute and there was always you guys were always entertaining yeah. as life Vantage partners yeah. in front of and for those that don't know the first front of Jersey sponsor was Zango then it became life Vantage and it was at the time if not the biggest front of Jersey deal one of the top at the time two yeah. or th- and yeah. it was it was really groundbreaking mm-hmm. um stuff and people forget sometimes that Real Salt Lake actually is up near the upper echelon um in the Earlier days of what the initial kind of commercial branding looked like. Um, so you and I, we were bouncing around and we we're seeing each other. And I, I specifically remember walking into the office, and I don't know what I came in the office for, uh, but I think I was going to see Tyler at the time. And you were suited up in the office, and yep. I was like, "What in the hell are you doing here?" That was here? literally what you yeah. said. Yeah. to me. Yeah. I what, what the hell are you I doing here? That. And you're like, yep. "Yep, I'm I'm part of the family I'm now. On this side, yeah. Yeah. And and so I, I I think it would be remiss not to ask you just and, and and again, not 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 to exalt anyone, not to bury anyone, just from a, a turbulence standpoint. I mean, you were in the thick of the transition period of watching what happened with previous ownership and leadership going through a global pandemic um coming out whatever the backside of this all looks like uh being a league-run team changing your role within the organization and then now having new ownership and what i continue to say what you guys have done in this last 24 months is nothing short of extraordinary if there was like a league title a league mvp a league front office you know office of the year what you guys have done is extraordinary and i'm not just blowing you up because you're standing in front of me it's just because this is how i feel about what you guys have done i i mean when you look back and i mean you're still in the thick of it because there's still new front of jersey there's still shoulder patches there's still commercial the commercialization of what this new ownership in this club looks like but i mean what a wild ride man you know
3: my father always taught us yeah my father was big on analogies Mm -hmm. and yeah he was an old italian guy so he would kind of mash him up yeah, yeah but yeah he would say listen john just keep your head down mm. and get your work done Yeah. don't pop your head up and he used to use the the analogy of being in a foxhole mm-hmm. he's like you know who gets shot the guy who pops his head up in the foxhole mm. keep your head down get the work done be the guy that is getting the work done nobody is going to look at you know you and say oh yeah no, he's working too hard yeah so that's that's what they want from you that's what they expect from you And that's what I did. I mean, literally, you know, I knew what we needed to do. I mean, the hardest part was I was running, you know, corporate partnerships at that point in time. And you can't generate partnership revenue if you're not playing games. Mm -hmm. And then even if you are playing games, you can't generate partnership revenue if there's nobody in the stands. Yeah, Um, You know, and I was part of the the weekly Tuesday meetings with Deloitte. And, you know, Deloitte's big thing was, look, be fair, but – I need you to salvage this much money for me. Be fair. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna give you complete autonomy in how you do it, but be fair. And, you know, for me it was trying to figure out a formula that was fair to partners that was look, here are the assets we can deliver on, and here's to that capacity. Yeah. And here's the stuff we can't. And I'm not gonna charge you anything for the ones we can't. You know, I'll and, and it became formulaic for me, yeah. right? Because we played you know, X percentage of our games and had (laughs) X percentage of our inventory available and had X percentage of eyeballs. And so I came up with a formula that, you know, I well exceeded what Deloitte had given me as a goal, and our partners all felt that it was fair. That's what I was focused on because I knew at some point this was going to end, and I knew at some point that the pandemic was going to go away, and we were going to start playing again. And I wanted all these partners to feel the, the, the one thing I wanted was that every one of them felt, yeah, they really treated us fairly value added. and it wasn't about me it was about the club treated us fairly because who knew right was I gonna survive yeah. all of this yeah you know fortunately again uh, I know oh, of, I know I know that feeling yeah yeah <laughs> but it's it for me, I didn't want anybody to feel bad hmm. about you know working with or being a partner with real Salt Lake we had clubs we had companies that actually renewed during the pandemic yeah. Because they liked the way we treated them because they liked, you know, most of our partners, all of our partners are local because, you know, obviously they want to connect with the local population. Right. So they're local partners, but most of them for national companies. And so they had relationships outside of Utah, outside of Real Salt Lake, yeah. that that's what they were kind of comparing it to. I mean, I'll never forget Sherwin Williams. They were in renewal hmm. and, uh, the, the local folks were great, you know, Kent Draper and so they were great. And they were like, hey, you know, corporate wants to get on the phone with you. Mm. I'm like, oh, OK. They're like, all right, well, it's going to be at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. I'm like, that's fine. You know, and we get on the phone and I I mean, I'm just like, OK, whatever. You know, great. Yeah. I get on the phone and it's a bunch of lawyers and it's the CFO. And they're like, you know, it it felt like they were coming in ready for a fight. Yeah. And they said, please walk us through what you're doing for us and I explained the whole formula and yeah. deliverables versus undeliverables and walked them through the spreadsheet and the CFO says so wait you're giving us money back I said well no I'm not even going to charge you I'm not, I don't have to give you money back yeah. he's like well we prepaid I said okay you why don't you guys renew and we'll roll it into next year yeah and he's like so renew and we'll roll it into next year I'm like yeah I said or we can cut you a check and give you money back whatever yeah. you want to do this you know do it the right way and they said all right we don't need you guys i mean, i'm on the phone yeah. so i don't know who he's talking about. i thought yeah. he's talking to me he's like we don't need you guys i'm like excuse me he's like no 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 i've dismissed the lawyers i'm like oh sweet okay great yeah they renewed for three more years in the middle of the pandemic yeah that's what i wanted people to feel they i wanted everybody that dealt with us to walk away with that feeling yeah. i wasn't gonna fight over nickels and dimes i wasn't gonna you know even you know, dealing with the banks. You know, mm-hmm. dealing with Zions Bank, dealing with the AmeriFirst First Credit Union. I wanted those guys to feel like we treated them fairly. Yeah. There was enough of a mess going on around me. Yeah. Right. So my father's foxhole analogy. There were bullets flying everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. Trying not there to catch a stray. Bombs scray. going yeah, off, yeah, and you know, yeah. and I'm just got my head down. Yeah. And I'm doing my work, and yeah. that's it, and that's how I got through it. And I wanted to make sure that our people felt that we were there for them. Hmm. I mean, that's why I was so excited when John Kimmel came around. I mean, I'll never forget. I'm getting goosebumps again. Um, the day that John Kimmel was announced to us as coming on board because we needed somebody like John hmm. that was going to galvanize the people. You know, our people had been through a lot. A, a lot. lot of people didn't know how to keep their heads down. Yeah. And so they took a couple of fragments here. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you looked around and you saw how, you know, some people... You know, the difference between furlough and laid off and all these other things, they just weren't around anymore. Yeah. And those that remained were kind of scared. They were looking around scared. And Their so feelings, me, yeah. I wanted to ease that angst for them. I didn't want them to be scared. I wanted them to be excited again. The reason they came to work for Al Sol Lake is because they were excited about being part of the club. Mm. So I wanted them to be excited again. That was my thing, really. Yeah. You know, the, the, the couple of times that I would pop my head out of the foxhole was to make sure everybody around me was okay. Yeah. And that, you know, and, and that's why, you know, when John, I just felt so strongly when he came around. And I barely knew him. Yeah, I mean, I barely had any interactions with him because he was gone from Real when I, you know, came on as a partner. We really didn't see each other very much. We got to meet during some of the tour of Utah stuff. But that all got clipped because of mm-hmm. COVID. But I just knew the kind of person he was, the human he was. And that's what we needed. And yeah. so, you know, for me, it was like, oh, thank God. Someone else leader. is going to yeah, 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 help. Got yeah. a leader. Yep, got a leader. So. Got it.
2: Got it. and you guys are doing an incredible, incredible job and in seeing the the rebuild of yeah. the and and this is what I've said on air a bunch of times. There's an incredible amount of human beings that really care about this club and really care about the fabric and to see kind of the regeneration of some of the old heads that started the club and around from the beginning and now kind of the influx of new personality and people. It seems like we're on the right track. So fast forward. This was. Uh, I don't know. It feels like a year and a half ago when I saw you and you had you were on crutches. Yep. And I asked you. I was like, "John, what's going on?" And at the time, you didn't really know what was going nope. on. Um I I am completely naive and ignorant to this whole process. So, if you can um, kind of when when this conversation happened, kind of what was going on for you when I saw you up on the third floor? And you were on your crutches, and you were heading into the uh,
3: the the media. The, I guess the media room. Yeah, at that point in time, um, I had had I, I so I was just recently diagnosed with ALS. Um, but there is no diagnosis for mm-hmm. ALS. You have to rule out everything else, um, and so you know I was literally in that process of ruling out everything else. I had what they called coincidental symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, what they were trying to do was treat what they could see with the hopes that, you know, it was going to cure what was going on. I literally, Brian, I woke up one Sunday morning in July of 2019. I swung my legs over the side of the bed and thought, oi, I got this like stabbing pain in my back. And yeah. I thought, I honestly thought I have kidney stones. Throwing issues. your back out? <laughs> no, I thought I had kidney stones, more oh, okay. kidney stones. Okay. And so got up, I go to View, they're like, it's, you're not passing a kidney stone. You actually have more in there now. You know, but go to a back doctor. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. Yeah. You know, kinda of blew it off again. Pops mentality, me- yeah. Pop's mentality. Yeah. And um but I started feeling it in my right leg. I started feeling pain, I started feeling discomfort. Um, and you know, so people were telling me, Oh, it's your T bands, and then they got me a foam roller and they put me on a T on the roller to try and stretch out my T bands and I was in excruciating pain. Like, yeah, we're not gonna do that. That's supposed. To, that's not supposed to hurt so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. And finally, um, one day I was walking. One morning I was walking. It was February of uh, of twenty one. Walking up a flight of stairs one morning, my legs give out under me. Go right back down the stairs. I break two ribs. Break two bones in my hand. So I promised my family, all right, I'll go see a back doctor. Yeah. And I go and uh, I had, you know, a bunch of herniated discs. Um, I had spinal stenosis, so they were, um, I had other things going on. Yeah, physically. Physically, that could kind of speak to why my leg buckled and gave out, so they went in and did surgery on it, and, you know, they went in, I had, you know, uh, they had five discs that were herniated, I had stenosis down both sides, all from the L1, L2, all the way down Mm -hmm. to S1, they cleaned it all out, now... The, the spinal surgery, it was an orthopedic spinal surgeon. And he said, I don't know what you've got going on in your leg. I don't know that this is going to help, but it may. Yeah. Um, so I had the we surgery. fix your back. Yeah, we'll fix your we back. But we don't know what the trickle down, we don't if know that's going to solve We don't it. know what's going on with your leg. Okay. Um, come out of surgery. Two weeks later, I start PT. I go in, you know, and I'm wearing shorts. It's middle of April. And uh, the PT touches my right leg and touches my left leg. He's like, are you Okay. I I'm here for PT. Yeah, you tell yeah, me. Yeah. What do I know? He's like, I think you're having a stroke. I'm like, whoa, wow. First day of PT, welcome, yeah. you know? He's like, well, this is, you have a significant difference in temperature between your right leg and your left leg. I'm like, well, what do we need to do? So he calls my surgeon. They immediately get me down, MRI. I wasn't having a stroke. There was nothing to explain the significant difference in temperature. Um, and just
2: by touch, he could just, just feel by, it. I mean, it was,
3: I mean now it's worse like i'm sitting here with my hands on my legs through my jeans i can feel my right leg is ice cold but you know what was they thought they thought i was having a stroke they ruled out stroke but they didn't know what was going on so then they referred me to a neurologist neurologist like oh it's compression palsy you know you just have a compression somewhere they go back into my back Mm. Open it up again. They don't see a compression anywhere. They see a little scar tissue. They see a little arthritis, but
2: nothing that would suggest. Nothing that would
3: suggest yeah. why I'm developing this palsy in my leg. Now, when you saw me at that point in time, I could no longer. I had a severe palsy in my right glute, my hamstring, my calf, my quad. Yeah. Uh, they had no idea what was causing it, and you know I've been on this carousel of MRIs and CTs and neurologists and neurosurgeons yeah. and. I mean, it's it's been it's been a year, hmm. um, and really, you know, they they had my neurologist had referred me to a neurosurgeon, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm, I mean, I can do surgery on you, but it's surgery for the sake of surgery." Yeah, and I didn't quite understand what that meant, and so then my neurologist wrote. A prescription, put it out to the public, and I met with seven additional neurosurgeons because you just want answers. I, yeah. I just want to G- give
2: me a course of action. I just yeah. wanted to walk, yeah. you
3: know. And what my neurologist kept telling me was, Listen, the longer those muscles stay atrophied, the longer it's going to take for you to heal. Yeah, and he, he explained to me, We were laughing about this last week yeah. actually. He said, You know, your nerves will regenerate one inch every 30 days. He said, fortunately, you have short legs, <laughs> so you're about three years out if we can, you know, relieve what's going on. He's like, you bastard. Yeah. I said to him, I said, you're shorter than me. Yeah. He laughed. But um, he's like, well, the, the, he said, the reason I'm telling you that is it's critical. We've got to get this compression mm-hmm. stopped. And, you know, going to all these neurosurgeons and stuff and and they're telling me, well, you know, we can do surgery. Mm-hmm. But there's and I wasn't asking the next question. And that's it didn't dawn on me. You know, all these guys are just saying, you know, I I can't help you basically, mm. and it didn't, because
2: there's not a lot of there's not a lot of history or storytelling behind ALS.
3: There's not, and and ALS. I mean, some people go even longer to get a diagnosis because there's the sad reality of ALS is there is no treatment, there is no cure. Mm. I mean, I will die from ALS. I don't know when yet, but I will die from, and we're all gonna die. So yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the only yeah. guarantee. Yeah. Um, but the problem is. The research patients don't live long with ALS and so like I've been reject- rejected for multiple research studies because they don't think I'm going to live through the length of the study so they want I mean, a certain
2: amount of time with you until yeah until.
3: the study takes they know that the study is going to take this period of time and I mean they they it, I'm getting used to it yeah but they literally say we don't know that you're going to survive long enough to, f- to complete this research It's like oof ouch yeah but it's the Punch truth in the face right? yeah. yeah um. But then, you know, for me, it was finally at the eighth neurosurgeon. He said, you know, I can't help you. I said, do me a favor. Just tell me what that means when you say it's surgery, you know, for the sake of surgery, but it's not going to help you. He said, oh, well, John, you still have full feeling. So it's not your nerves per se. It's related to your nerves because your right leg is now completely paralyzed. It's Your muscles aren't receiving any type of of response or any type of impulse to do anything yeah. they are your right leg is paralyzed your left leg is in a fe- severe state of atrophy but you have full feeling it's not your sensory nerves it's your motor nerves it's your motor neuron um i said okay so if you were me doc yeah. what would you do he said i would go to a neuromuscular specialist and there's a neuromuscular clinic up at the university of utah and my first visit, they said, "No, oh, John. I mean, I've had twenty-eight MRIs. I've had eleven CTs. I've had angiograms. I've had all kinds of stuff." And so they had all these things that they could reference, and yeah. they had all the you know the scans and all the notes from all the surgeons. And they said, "No, oh, John, you have ALS. I mean, you're textbook ALS. Um, we don't expect a neurologist to know that. We don't expect a neurosurgeon to know that. This is our specialty. Yeah, you are textbook ALS."
2: And so, and how how. I would assume how often that they find themselves in a situation where they are speaking to someone that has no idea what's going on, that have been completely frustrated over and over and over, that have become ultimately an insurance specialist with trying to figure out how to navigate what this what this sea of, of miscommunication looks like. Um, but for you when you're in that when you're in that moment, I mean, obviously that's that's a devastating conversation to, to be a part of.
3: Yes. I mean it was my my biggest fear was that it would be I'm proud
2: of you man. By talking about this you're helping so many people.
3: From the beginning From the beginning, I was suspecting it was ALS. I Mm -hmm. told my wife, I told my daughters, and I said, you know, we're going to fight this, whatever. We're going to take this on. Um, And one of the most exciting times in this was when the neurologist said, it's not ALS, John. You Mm -hmm. have compression palsy. You know, you have neuroforaminal narrowing. I'm not a science guy, so I'm struggling. But you have neuroforaminal narrowing that's pressing on the nerves. And you know that's what's causing this um and i felt great i'm like all right fix that will you? yeah i mean i don't know what that yeah. means yeah. but you're the doc <laughs> Grab <laughs> the <laughs> knife let's go you fix that right <laughs> um but the more you know he couldn't fix that it was mm-hmm. getting worse and every week it was getting worse and every day i was feeling things are not you know not able to move and those kind of things i mean it's a progression yeah. and so you know it as I was meeting with all of the neurosurgeons, I mean, he literally told me in July of 21 that it wasn't ALS. So, you know, I went from July of 21 till July of 22, yeah. coincidentally, before I found out that, oops, it is ALS. Um, you know, and, and honestly, you know, we had switched insurance with the new ownership mm-hmm. and we had switched over from a plan that I had been on for years to a plan that you know I hadn't been on. And, and they looked, they my doc had written a prescription for another MRI. And the new insurance company said, okay, stop, hmm. wait. This young man, at that point in time, I had had 25 MRIs. And at that point in time, I had had eight CTs. Um, and they said, okay, we're not doing one-offs. We want you to admit this man into the hospital and keep this man as long as you need to keep him but come up with a diagnosis. Hmm. That's literally what the insurance company said. And so there I went into the hospital for a week and they ran every test imaginable. They ran blood tests to make sure it wasn't autoimmune. They took spinal fluid. They um, A couple more MRIs, yeah, a couple more yeah. CTs, a couple of nuclear CTs. But they ran every test. I was in there for about five days. And, um, you know, they... I mean it was it was sad because I had a couple of so you, you know I had the my neurologist that I was seeing in the office young guy great guy and then the attending neurologist at the hospital also a young guy great guy and man, they were crying because mm. they literally couldn't tell me what was wrong with me they were literally crying this one guy I mean god bless him because his bedside manner is amazing I mean he was sitting in my hospital room the day they were gonna discharge me and he's like, John, I'm trying to come up with more tests so we could just keep you because you seem you got, I was in the, yeah. the the I was in the the neurology department and he's like you're almost upbeat patient. You know, you he goes you're you're crazy. He goes you oh, get out yeah. of bed. That's your personality. He goes at seven o'clock in the morning the, the nurses are about to start rounds. You have already showered yourself. <laughs> yeah. You've already gotten yourself food, yeah. you know, and you walk around and you say hi to all the patients. Yeah. He's like, you know We don't want to send you home like this. We don't know what's wrong with you. We don't want to send you home. But Dunny, I mean, God, hearing that doctor, he turned, and and I said to him, and I could tell Hmm. he was going to tell me something bad. And I'm one of those people, I want to know what I'm up against. And so he turned to me, and I said, listen, Doc, he's a young guy. And I said, Doc, listen, just tell me. I said, I will take care of my wife. She was across from me, and her eyes were just Mm wallowing And I said, I'll take care of her, but I need you to just tell me what is this? Yeah. And he said, he goes, you have ALS. And so here we are. Yeah. So,
2: so since that moment in time, and by the way, watching you every single day at work or in around the team or down on the field or up dealing with media members uh, and all of us knuckleheads, uh, nothing but. Stoic and your personality and your work ethic always there, and I know you can challenge. You can ultimately challenge, challenge, not channel um, a bunch of of your feelings into what you can control. Right, control the controllables. Um, what for 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 now being diagnosed with something that is such an unknown to so many different people right I mean everybody knows the name they understand it but they don't understand it not, not a lot of people understand it a lot of medical professionals don't understand nope. it what what is your what is your hope what is your goal what are the resources that you want to put out there for those that potentially um, are finding themselves with certain bullet points that might mimic what you've gone through
3: my hope I mean, my ticket's been punched. There's Mm -hmm. no saving me. There's no stopping this within me. Um, What I hope is that anyone, at some point, those who come after me, those who are sitting in that room with a neuromuscular specialist that hear that diagnosis, you have ALS, they don't feel like they just got a death sentence. Mm -hmm. What I want to be able to do is impact research. I know everybody knows about ALS. It's got Lou Gehrig attached to it. You know what I mean? It's been around since the 1800s, literally. The problem is is that people don't survive long enough with it that they can do the research to come up with a cure. Of course, correct. Um, There's not even treatment Mm -hmm. for it. I mean, you know, I, I just got denied. There are two drugs that are approved by the FDA, and all they're proven to do is extend your life four to six months. They're hundreds of thousands of dollars each per year, <laughs> and so you know I was rejected from both of those drugs because I'm my mobility level is below the scale that they want you on, and so like I can't even take that. There's nothing I can do, but what I can do is impact the research. What I want, like my wife shocked me. My, it was my wife's birthday yesterday, and uh, she shocked me because she started a um, a donation thing yeah. on Facebook for her birthday. Um, and she put a goal of $200 towards the ALS Rocky Mountain chapter. And you know, thank I mean, my friends are amazing, absolutely amazing and incredible. She raised over three thousand dollars. That's amazing. Facebook, yeah, you know, donate kind of thing. But you know, my hope is that I can impact the research, yeah, that I can generate enough money and funding for more research because that's what's missing i mean there's a big you know hoopty-doo going on right now in congress and everything else about a new als drug mm. and you know my brother texts me right away and he lives in south florida so he's like johnny we're getting you out here we're going to get you on this drug so i said all right wait slow down calm down <laughs> yeah. let me talk to my, my doctors i yeah. happen to have an appointment yesterday and my doctor said he goes john The big thing is it's it's a there's pressure on Congress to get this passed because they want it to look like they're doing something for ALS. He said there's a very small subset within the research that shows an extension of ten months of life for those taking this drug. He said and it's anywhere between five to seven thousand dollars a month for this drug, and they're very limited in you know the people that they're allowing. Even if they pass, it hasn't been FDA approved yet. He said, you know, the, the, the point that people like me who have it are taking is I'm dying anyway. What? Mm. Who cares what the side effects are? Yeah. I'm dying anyway. Yeah. I want it to be that people are more confident when a doctor gives them that diagnosis that, oh, okay, there's a lot of good research going on. They're making some breakthroughs and, you know, maybe this isn't a death sentence because it was an absolute death sentence for me. Mm. My heart literally sunk to my feet. I tried to be tough for my wife. I tried to be strong, yeah. you know. And and I said to the doctor, he's this cute little eighty plus year old man. And I turned to him. I say, hey, Doc, I'm going to make you famous. He looks at me, <laughs> and I said, No. I said, I said we're gonna we're gonna go after this. Yeah. I said I'm going to use my platform, and we're going to go after this. I said, you know, I know nothing's going to happen in my time yeah. here, but. Let's let's make some some inroads on this, please.
2: So let let's do this. What what is the platform? You you talked about what your wife did for you, which is extraordinary, and what your friends and family and the three thousand dollars raised. So, how can anybody listening to this um, donate either their their financial capabilities or their physical capabilities to whatever platform? There's that... a
3: Rocky Mountain chapter okay. of the ALS, um, you know, organization. Okay. Um, ALS Foundation and you know, you can make donations right to the Rocky Mountain chapter. I'm actually going to stand up um, my own foundation um, so that I can kind of make sure that it goes to the yeah, research yeah, type stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, our good friend Pablo Mastrione, uh shocked me uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in fact, Rob Zarcos called me um, just a couple hours prior to a home game. And uh, he says, listen, you need to know that Pablo is going to wear your initials on his arm. hmm and uh,
2: I got a lot of tweets about that asking me what was going on I told him to hold on because we had figured out that we were going to do a post game
3: he, um, he wants to have an impact he wants to help me Yeah. Um, and he somebody came up with this hashtag Jenna Strong mm. um, and I'm starting a Jenna Strong foundation uh, because I want to make sure that the money goes to research and resources because That's the stuff that's lacking. And, you know, it's not that the government, no one needs more awareness for ALS. The Ice Bucket Challenge went around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, People know of ALS. People know of Luke Gehrig's disease. It's not that it needs more awareness. It needs more support. It needs Mm -hmm. more research, you know. And, and, you know, for Pablo to be standing on the sidelines, I mean, nobody knows what it means, you know, but he's got it on every game. And, you know, he says to me, he goes, John, you're with me. You are with me. He said, you know, it's not corny. It's not, but you're with me. This means you're with me. Yeah. And it means so much. But if we can generate awareness to the research, not to ALS, but to the research that need, that's required, because that's my thing. I mean, that's my thing is that I want to be able, my I want my legacy to be that I had an impact on the research and people are starting to survive. Yeah. If it's not going to be me, like I said to the doc too, I said, listen. Someone's got to be the first person to survive this thing. Why not me? And he, you know, kind of, I'm too far along, but I get that. But someone's got to be a first, right? So if that person comes out of the result of this foundation and this research that spawned from this extra funding that they received, that's my legacy, man.
2: So Jenna Strong, Rocky Mountain ALS, and uh, we are going to back you, whether it's us, we're all family.
3: Thank you. All family. You've always been. And I remember that. I, I have pictures <laughs> still from that trip. I do. You uh, took me out to, we drove out to a park. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. went there for hours with my camera, yeah. took pictures, took pictures of the bridge yeah. that was yeah. right, right up yeah. across. The, Incredible. I'll never forget that. I mean, I, I, you know, more detail. I picked you up literally at the at the the rental place, the yeah. rental car place. Yeah.
2: I was out there standing like a nugget. And you you're were like, on the jump phone. Jump <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, come on, get it. Jump in. And you're on
3: the phone and I'm trying not to interrupt you well. and I'm like,
2: like, wave me over. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, I appreciate you. You know how much love I have for I you. I love you, brother. And, uh, we, we will do everything that we possibly can to continue to push this story and make sure that everyone is aware of Jenna Strong and what your foundation is uh, is is going to be, what it is going to mean to the future.
3: So, thank you. I love you, man. I love you too, Brian. Thank you, Done. <laughs> <laughs>